Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. You'll join us at the Messiah Lutheran Church Bible Study class each week, led by Pastor Jim Adi. We're still continuing our Living the Life of the Beloved and the Belonged series, but this week's episode is cut about 10 to 15 minutes short due to recording technical difficulties. We lost power to our recorder partway through. That's an error on my part. I'm sorry. To help cover any lost ground, we will have a more in-depth review section during the beginning of next week's episode. But until then, please enjoy this portion of this week's episode. So I want to uh, do a little review from last week. We talked a lot about uh, oneness and marriage and all of that in terms of Jesus's words to that. And so I've added a little bit to that with respect to our conversations about oneness. I've been thinking a lot about oneness this week, trying to figure out a way to adequately describe something that in the scriptures is a mystery. And when the scriptures talk about something being a mystery, it's not just simply the idea that it's mysterious, that obviously that would go with it, but it's also the idea that God is working something very uh, specific and very special and that it's something that, that when God sets the parameters of that, he says, here's the parameter in which that happens. And so often what happens for us as human beings is that we don't like the idea that God would set any boundaries on us. And we say, well, we want it without the parameters. And that's the difficulty that a lot of people experience with respect to, uh, to how people today feel about the restrictions of marriage. So anyway, let's look at uh, the, the, uh, uh, the uh, things that we learned from last week, or at least we talked about last week. Okay, you with me? So the first one is adultery breaks the marital vow. Okay, we talked about that. It is forgivable, but it does take work, and it certainly takes a certain amount of time. It's time and work to, uh, to restore trust. So we did talk about that, that, that uh, the scriptures talk about the idea that if people get divorced under the sort of grounds, if you will, the Bible doesn't really use that word grounds, but that's an okay word to use, where adultery was present, it's seen as something that the, the so-called innocent party has been victimized by the person who did the adultery. And so there can be divorce uh, can happen as a result of that, but divorce does not have to happen as a result of that. And that's the point here that uh, Jesus was making. The second one is that oneness is a created gift in marriage, reflecting the oneness that Jesus has with his church, which is, we know, the body of Christ. So a couple notes there. Oneness is best described as a deep connection with Jesus in the middle. So if you think of it from that perspective of trying to kind of describe what oneness in marriage is, it is this idea that no matter where, you, once you get married, no matter where you go, no matter what you do, you take the other person with you, even if the other person isn't physically with you, the other person is with you. That's the best way to describe that. And when we talk about Christian marriage, then what we're talking about there is, is that you have the two people who, no matter where they go, they always take each other with them, but Jesus is in the middle. So now it's no matter where you go, Jesus is in the middle with you and the other person, even if the other person isn't physically there with you. That's the best way I can think of to describe that. 
so the sort of visible, the visible example of that that somebody shared with me one time is that if you were to hug somebody like this, presumably the person that you're married to would be the best, right? All right. And so then you walk from one end of the room to the other. Okay. What, what would it be like to do that? What Keith fall over? over? You've tried this, huh? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, isn't there a certain, um, there's a certain rhythm that you have to get into, isn't there? You know, what happens if both of you try to lead? Well, that's trouble. Well, what if both of you say, oh, I'll just wait for the other one to lead? Well, then you're not going to go anywhere, right? So that's part of the problem. But there is a kind of a, there is a kind of a sort of rhythm that you get into in order to do that. And that's the idea. So then the third party that is present between you and your spouse is Jesus. Okay. And so that's the best way that I can think of to describe that. And by the way, I did take this to a higher authority. Um, I went to Pastor Coleman and I asked him what he thinks oneness is. And, uh, and he gave me his opinion. And then we just went with mine anyway. So that worked out. That worked out pretty good. All right. So and then thirdly, a husband is given the responsibility and privilege to cherish his wife as Christ cherishes the church. And then that cherishing in turn feeds the wife's respecting of him. So I, what I did was I, I brought in Ephesians 5, 25 to 33, because that really best describes that relationship aspect of husband and wife. And one of the things, I don't know if you know this, um, how many Lutheran weddings you've gone to. And if you've actually paid attention to what's said in the Lutheran weddings, other than the vows, okay. In the very first part of the uh, liturgy of the, of a Lutheran wedding, we, we talk about that. We describe that this idea of Phil, you were recently married and you're shaking your head like this, like you remember, wow, that's awesome. Um, <laughs> is he has it on podcast. Well, he's got all the film on podcast. That's for sure. Um, and we talk about that, that, that Christian marriage is a picture. It's a temporal picture of the spiritual relationship that Jesus has with the church. So see, that's the link of it. It's, it's not just simply, oh, we got married because we love each other. And oh, we got married. I mean, that's, it's good that people do love each other. But it's not that that's the only thing going on. What's also going on is that greater sense of, of Jesus and the church, Jesus and the body of Christ. And that then becomes the template for how we do that relationship with each other in marriage. So if you read along with me from Ephesians five, he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing and water through the word that's baptism and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now uh, think about that for a second. What church is there in existence that does not have a stain or wrinkle or any other blemish? Can you think of a, such a church? Not any that I've ever pastored, let me tell you, right? I mean, does that exist? No. And yet, what is Jesus able to do? Present that church to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or blemish, but holy and blameless. How is he able to do that? By suffering and dying for that church. 
by his willingness to lay down his life for that church, that's us, right? He is able to make that church radiant without stain or wrinkle or any other blame or any other blemish. Okay. In this same way. Now here's the link. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. There's that oneness thing. This is a profound ministry and I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. You see, there's this flow of love and respect, love and respect, love and respect. That's the flow. And that's the ideal, but it's very doable, if you will, in terms of Christian marriage with Jesus in the middle. When Jesus isn't in the middle, people can do it. But the problem is, is that the power source for doing it on those days when you don't want to do it, right? You're not in the mood to do it. Maybe you're still remembering some dumb thing that either person did the night before. Whatever it is, that's when our own strength and our own ability to do it wanes. But that's when Jesus is there and we're leaning on him and we're thinking of marriage in this respect. That's when it's very doable. Okay. Somebody had their hand up. Yeah, Keith. Also on the oneness, if you go back to Genesis, God created man in his image. So it was one-on-one, and the man was just like God. When he created a woman, he took part of man and made them two, so together they were one with God. Yeah. So what kept Adam and Eve from thinking that they were, in fact, God? They were created in the image of God, right? So what kept them from thinking that they were, in fact, the same as God or equal with God or, in fact, were God? Yeah, Mike. Yeah, but still, if you go, if, if you're going around in your life and somebody's telling you, you're creating the image of God, you're creating the image of God and you have everything you want and you have everything you need and, and you can do whatever you want. What's going to stop you from thinking, huh, I must be God. Before the apple. The tree. <laughs> the tree. The tree is what was the boundary, right? You can have anything you want in the garden, anything. You can do anything you want. You can eat anything. You can grab anything except what? That tree. That tree. That was the boundary. And that's God's way of demonstrating to them that they are, although they were created in the image of God, they were not in fact God. So when they went after that tree, what are they asserting to God? They are saying, in fact, we are God because we can do what we want and we don't care what sort of rule you have for us. We don't care about the boundary you have for us. We are, in fact, God. Kind of interesting, isn't it? It never would have happened if any of us had been there, I assure you, right? Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, Mark? First test of free will. Pardon? First test of free will. Yeah, I wonder if God ever regretted giving people free will. You know, I don't know. So anyway, that's what we talked about last week, and I sort of added the Ephesians verses in there as well, because I think we really were, were wrestling a little bit with what this idea of oneness is and, uh, and, and kind of how that all goes together. Okay, ready to move on? Ready? Okay, good. Let's do. So now we go into 
Matthew 5, 33 to 37, which in some sense, I think, builds on the idea of vows. So we're coming out of, you know, we're coming out of vows in terms of marriage and the sanctity of marriage and the, and the, uh, the wholeness of marriage and the oneness and all that. Well, now it moves into how you use your words. All right. So Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows that you have made. Now, in Jesus's day, there were some abuses that people or some license that people were taking with respect to how they use their words. And then in particular, the, the verbal commitments that they were making, not only in, uh, in terms of their business transactions with each other, but also certainly in courts of law. And we can talk a little bit about that, but also then in terms of their transactions with each other and their relationships with each other. So there were two abuses that were going on regarding the taking of oaths. The first one was what's called frivolous swearing, where someone asserts the truth of something, but, and then they sort of in a casual way make an oath, but there's no oath required. So if somebody was to say, on my mother's grave, right? Or people today, you'll hear it all the time. They'll say, oh, I swear to God, right? And so the, the, what was at, at issue here was the use of sacred words, sacred ho or holy words or words that would normally be reserved for God or for uh, spiritual things and to use that in kind of a trite and meaningless way. All right. That's, that was the first way that people were abusing that. The second way was what was called evasive swearing where the object of the oath is what determined whether or not you were bound to the oath or not. So if someone was to say, uh, I'm going to do this in the name of God, right? In God's name, that was the, the sort of calling on God. Well, then the person was, they were expected to honor that oath, that they were bound to that oath. But if somebody said, well, heaven is my witness, right? Then they were not bound to the oath. And so again, the, the rationalization that people were using in that day was that if God's specific name is used, then I am bound to the oath that I'm making. I'm, I have to fulfill the promise I've made, right? Does that make sense? But if I don't use God's name, then I can just say it, but I don't have to keep my promise. I don't have to fulfill the oath. So what began to happen was people were listening very carefully, not to the promise that was being made, but rather to the oath aspect of it as to whether or not I'm going to believe what you're saying or not believe what you're saying. Okay. All right. So let's see what Jesus has to say about that. He says, I tell you, don't swear an oath at all, either by heaven for it is God's throne or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Who can make one hair white or black? <laughs> do what? John? John? John, I didn't quite, I didn't quite hear that. Who, did, you, did you have a comment there? Was that John? Oh, was that Carl? Oh. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
here's what I've noticed is that when I asked the question, everybody was doing the guy back there. So probably Gerald, maybe Gerald is the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, Kim. <laughs> Children can, yeah. But actually, other people might be the catalyst for that, right? His point is, is that only God can do that, right? Only God can do that. All right, so let's see what uh, beloved life principle number 23 is. You can't divide life, L-I-F-E, life. You can't divide life into compartments in which God is involved or not involved. What I do in my personal life doesn't affect my public life is a common belief to justify compartmentalized spirituality. See, that's the point that Jesus is going after here, and that's what they were trying to do. They're trying to say, well, in my relationship with you or my transaction with you, if I swear by God's name, then I am obligated to do the thing that I said I would have to do, right? But if I don't do that, then I'm not obligated to do that. Jesus' point is you can't split them because your word is your word. And if Jesus is right there in the middle with you and that other person in that moment, then how in the world are you going to say, well, God, he was present when I said his name, but he wasn't present when I didn't say his name, and therefore I don't have to do what I said I would do if he's not there. Can you see how human that is, right? To somehow try to separate the two and say, well, here's where it counts and here's where it does not count. So the point you see is that all of life belongs to God. That's what Jesus is saying. All of life belongs to God. So if you're saying simple yes or simple no, or if you're going into long explanations like many of us do, still it's God. God's there. Jesus is there. Right. By the way, how many of you would describe yourselves in terms of your communication style as painters? Are you familiar with painter? Painter people are people that go on and on and on and on. <laughs> See, now you're not going to raise your hand, right? Now you're, yo, no, that couldn't be possibly me. So, like, for example, when you're telling somebody the story of what happened, like they'll say, well, what happened? Why did you do that? What happened? Okay. And then you tell them the story. Uh, do you like tell the story in the indexed form, cliff note form, or do you tell them the story like there's the back story and then there's the, the main story and then there's the uh, consequential story, the ramifications of that? Do you, do, so how many of you do that, would say that? The very artistic among us are like that. Yes. <laughs> no, you're the only honest one in the room is what it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, so how many of you then, if you're not a painter, you're very likely to be a pointer and a pointer is a person who's very succinct in the points and they kind of want to just know the, the, the main thing in outline form. Yeah. So how many of you like that? And then the rest of you have no idea what you are. <laughs> And you, you flip back and forth. What I'm often amazed at is how many times a painter marries a pointer. And it kind of is one of those sort of complimentary things, okay? We sort of all sort of uh, attracted to each other in terms of the opposite nature of that. And the beauty of it, of course, is that when, uh, 
when you first meet that other person, you're enthralled about how that, that difference is. And then about two years later, it's driving you nuts. So that's, um, that's kind of how that works. Yes. Well, I'm a painter and he's a pointer. And the hideous thing is, what's the bottom line? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Give him the bottom line first, then I can give the details. Well, because see, sometimes painter people don't know the point. <laughs> no, they don't. Be, and so they're searching for the point, right? They're searching for the point. And, and the way they find the point is by telling you the whole thing. And then kind of what they hope is they'll discover the point sort of like maybe by sort of some divine revelation or something. I'm not sure what it is. Okay. So, so and then sometimes the painter can have a point and in the telling of the story gets lost and then loses the point. Okay. And so the problem for pointers is that when they're listening to a painter, they're trying to figure out, okay, what's the point here? What's the point? And if they think they figured out what the point is, they stop listening. Because I don't need to listen anymore because I already got the point. So then what do you think the painter does who can by osmosis discern that the pointer has checked out and is no longer listening. What do you think the painter does? The painter gets more anxious. And when the painter gets more anxious, he retells the story again, <laughs> but does it with more detail and a bit more sense of fervency and urgency and maybe more emotion, thinking that the pointer didn't quite get the point. And so then, so this very, it's kind of a funny, funny thing. Yeah. See, I, I guess that my wife is definitely a painter. Your wife is a painter. Okay. But the thing about it is she tells everything the way she wants to know it. And she's extremely detailed. Oh, detailed, yes. Descriptively, so, I'm so sure. She just goes, yes. On forever. On forever. Yes. This is a phrase that's often heard by people that are more pointer people, that the phrase on forever, which of course is not true, right? I mean, because, because she would still even now be, be going on even while we're here talking. So that's really not true, but that's what a pointer says because the pointer has reached that threshold. See, so there's a threshold. And part of the deal, again, we think about the oneness thing and the respect thing and the love thing and all that. So part, the way that I like to have people think about it is that if I'm one way and you're the other way, I'm never going to be like you. I'm never going to be like you and you're never going to be like me. But maybe we can lean toward each other. Right? And so leaning might mean that, uh, let's see, what would be some ideas of leaning? Uh, you could put people on the clock. You could do that, actually. I wouldn't recommend it, but you can do it. All right. You can have somebody sort of write out what their painter thoughts are. They sort of get it out. They can do that. So there's a lot, you know, but the idea is that I'm going to do what? I'm going to make room for you and your style in my world. That's what you're going to do. Okay, we have a hand over here. Jacob, you had, and then Mike has his. Jacob, do you still want to say something? So I was just going to defend the painters. <laughs> now, you have to speak up a little bit. You're going to defend the painters? Oh, yes, please do that. Yes. Um, um. 
like a lot. I just I feel like as a painter, um, you really have to make them understand the backstory before you can get into this. I'm totally with you. That that the pointers have need to know the full story, right? They need to know the history. And they need to know the nuances of it, and they need to know then that would make sense of why you did the dumb thing you did. Of course, that's that's exactly right. Yeah, did, uh, Scott, did you have? Oh, you're just making comment over there is what you're doing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Marvin. So what's your point? Well, you know. Yeah. Well, better is not necessarily the goal. Connection is. Okay, connection is. And it kind of depends on the setting, right? There are some settings where actually pointer gets in the, uh, pointer is what we need. When a decisive decision, uh, you know, needs some sort of uh, more immediate kind of thing, we need to figure out what to do. We don't need to have the long history. If the, if the roof is caving in, really we need the pointers to lead the way, right? And then after we all get out on the parking lot and we're all safe, all the painters are gonna really kick in and need to, need to process, we need to process, okay? So there's a, there's a place, right? There's a place. Yeah, Mike. I can say, just step out. Sometimes the time when a thing does work, and like if I'm in the middle of doing something, I'll say, can I get the one minute version? Oh, that's a good one. Can I get the one minute version? That's good. And how does that work for you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, another one is, can you say that in nine words or less? So that's another one. I've heard that one before, personally. Yes. Okay, so we're getting it. Okay, so the point here is, Marvin, right? The point is, is that those differences that we have in terms of how we communicate, right, make a difference in terms of the, the, the oneness aspect of it and the connectability of it. And we have to make room for that. It's just that part of it is we don't always appreciate or understand that other persons need to do that. And we sort of take it personal and we say, oh, you're just being mean. Well, no, that's not, this is a, this is a legitimate style. Okay? What do you think I am, by the way? <laughs> a painter. It took you 10 minutes to tell. <laughs> that's why... We're, we're working through a mere three or four chapters of Matthew, <laughs> and it's going to take like all year to get there. All right, very good. Okay, so what does Jesus say? He says, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So that's kind of a shot to painters, isn't it? Yeah. All right, so the beloved life principle number 24 is be mindful of your choice of words. They matter. And they reflect the voice of who's in charge. Okay, who's in charge? See, our words matter. Uh, is there a difference between making a promise and just simply saying you're going to do something, but you didn't use the word promise? Is there a difference? If I say, I promise to do this versus I'm going to do this. Is there a difference in that? No, Jesus is saying no. He's saying no. It's your word. Okay? So a question that I have here for us to think about is what practical steps do you use or follow to teach young people that their word matters? How do you do it? If you are a person of influence for somebody younger than you, 
a grandkid, your own kid, somebody else's kid down the street, okay, a Boy Scout uh, leader. I mean, wh- whatever it is, church group, how, however it is, where you're in a position to be a person of influence, a teacher, okay, for that young person, wh- what do you do that helps to uh, guide them or to teach them or coach them or whatever it is that their word matters to keep your word. I got a few things here, but I want to hear what you have to say, Carl. That's obviously the most effective way when they make some kind of a commitment. Yeah. Is to say, are you willing to pay the price to make that happen? Every, every commitment you make means that you're going to concentrate on something. Yeah. You're going to give up something to Ooh. do that. And, and you're going to work diligently to make it occur. Yeah. So uh, success comes from diligent perseverance. Yeah. And okay. If you're not willing to do that, then don't promise it. So what you're saying is, is that you uh, prompt the person or you, you say something to the effect of that are you willing to pay the price or are you willing to make the sacrifices or are you willing to do the work, whatever it is that takes to get to that to that uh, desired end. Very good. Yeah, Phil. Um, I don't have any children that I mentor myself, but um, one thing that I found was for the for the for the parent or the person to be honorable with their own word when they when they make a commitment to you. Yes. So small backstory, painting time. Um, yes, paint for us, Phil. What? <laughs> uh, like one of the most uh, 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 detailed stories, not detailed, sorry. One of the best stories I remember with my father was that like we were we were at the dinner table. Yeah. We made some ridiculous bet over what the clock, what time the clock had. And so I'm like, hey, you know, I knew that I was right. <laughs> yeah. So I, I just, you know, said something, hey, do you bet like $12.50 that, you know, you were right? And he says, sure, and we shake on it. And turns out he was wrong. The next day, he walks me while I'm doing some some uh, yard work in the backyard, and he hands me twelve dollars and fifty cents. And I was like, "Wow!" Like that really stuck with me. Like he actually like stuck to his yeah. Work. He remembered what he said, and plus he got you to mow the whole lawn for twelve dollars <laughs> and fifty cents. Man, that! Why I'd like you to come mow my lawn. That'd be very good, Phil. Yeah, absolutely. But it's just, again, it's that what you're saying is so true that very often, even if you don't think you're a person of influence because you're not thinking in a direct way, how you handle your word will be a template for the other little ones that are watching you and you, you don't even know they are. Okay, so that's a that's a really good point, and that's actually one of the ones that that I'd mentioned too. That we keep we keep our word. Okay, yeah. One big thing that you talked about, yeah, if they work hard, they're going to be successful. But that's part of the problem of kids today. They think just because they work hard, they're going to make an A, and that doesn't go hand in hand. Just yes, you have to work hard, but just because we have a lot of kids in AP classes go, yeah, but I'm working hard, so you should give me an A. Yeah. That's not the way life works. You have to start. I think from all these people saying participation trophies, mm-hmm. we're seeing a lot of that effects of the kids today in school. Okay. Because they think if they come in for tutoring, then they're magically going to get an A. I said, no, but you'll do better. Yeah. So there is magical thinking that goes on with young people. Yeah. Okay. And so 
part of the magical thinking is that, that I don't have to practice piano in order to become good. Okay, I mean, that's kind of magical thinking. So the idea, one of the ideas that I was thinking about too is that if a child commits to something, like to, oh, I want to take band or I want to do this. You know, there's a lot of that that goes on, that kind of grandiosity that says, oh, I can just do it and it'll be fun and all my friends are doing it anyway, all right? Until it's time to practice, right? Or until you have to get up at four in the morning to get to the band practice in time before the heat of the day. I mean, all those kinds of things. So what do you do when your, your child or that kid says, it's boring and, and it's too hard and, and it's no fun and my friends are quitting anyway so, and wants to quit? What do you do? No. You say no. Yeah. Now, who might end up suffering as a result of that? <laughs> you will. You will. Okay. You, I mean, that should be no surprise to any of us, but, but that's part of the sacrifice that gets made when you're, when you're teaching that, when you're, when you're modeling that, when you're, you're, te- you're doing the template for that. Yeah, Bob. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.